We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com gold today to get 10% off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold in my early days I faced a pivotal moment in my career instead of following the herd into traditional finance I charted my own course despite skepticism I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility through perseverance I established myself as a leading voice in finance proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed to get what you want sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail that's what Harry's did seeing people tricked by expensive razors Harry's took a stand Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harris.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. So I don't forget later in the podcast, I want to let everybody know that the plan is for me to be a guest on the Laura Ingram show on Fox News tomorrow night. The show airs from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern time, and it will be a live appearance. Now, sometimes I promo these appearances and I end up not being on. It is the intention of uh, the producers and Laura to have me on, uh, but you never know because that's a live program. If there's some breaking news, it's possible that you tune in and I'm not there. But hopefully, if all goes according to plan, I will be there. So I would encourage people to tune in and and watch me. You know, if I get a ratings boost, uh, these uh, networks will have me on more often if they see more people tuning in. Uh, to uh, to hear me. Also, I wanted to correct something I mentioned on the last podcast about the Money Show. I'm going to be at the Money Show in Miami on uh, April 10th, and I initially said that it was free because every Money Show I've ever been to has been free. But I haven't been there in in a few years, so it's a rare appearance for me to go to go back. And I actually had some other things I'm going to be doing in the Miami area, so it kind of worked out. Uh, But I found out that they actually are charging money now. I mean, this is another uh, result of inflation. This kind of thing doesn't even show up in the CPI. You know, when something that was free all of a sudden costs money, that doesn't even make it in because it never was there to begin with. Uh, But it now costs, apparently it's $249.00 to get a ticket, although there's an early bird special if people register now for $199. But if you want to go, uh, I've arranged $50 off if you sign up at the website that they set up for me. It's shift.moneyshow.com. So you can get $50 off the early bird special if you want to go down there. Now, there's a few things that I want to talk about on today's uh, podcast, one uh, being the 60 Minutes appearance of uh, Jerome Powell. You know, it's getting to be a regular recurring event, right, that the Fed chairman goes on 60 Minutes. And, of course, he gets treated a lot better than 60 Minutes treated me. You know, he's not going to have to sue and win for defamation like I did. But I'm going to talk about uh, what Powell said. Then I'm going to talk about what President Trump said. He was interviewed 
also over the weekend by Maria Bartiromo uh, of, uh, of Fox Business. And so I want to talk about that. And then I also want to talk about uh, today's SEC uh, announcement, which is something that I kind of spoke about on one of the podcasts that I did over the summer when I was in Europe. And I kind of saw this happening, and now, and now it's happened. So I want to talk about that because it's a, it's, a, it's a negative development. But before I get into that, I want to mention gold again because, you know, gold dropped about 20 bucks an ounce uh, yesterday, although it recovered about half of that decline today. But, of course, as soon as gold goes down, you know, the gold stocks get hammered. They're down 3 4% again. Uh, the sentiment is just so negative in these names. And we've had a lot of these $20 or more sell-offs in the price of gold, which has you know, scared the hell out of uh, the gold stock market. But what I pointed out today on, uh, on, on X, and something that nobody is really talking about, but even though gold went down a lot, I mean, not a lot. I mean, 20 bucks isn't that much. But even though it has these big drops, gold has not gone below 2,000 in 37 days. That means that gold hasn't traded below 2,000. I'm talking about spot, not even the futures, which trade a little higher. But there hasn't been a single day in 2024 where gold has been below 2,000. I mean, think about that. And 37 consecutive days above 2,000, that's a record. You know, the prior record uh, was 11 days above uh, 2,000. And that was in late uh, 2023. So kind of not too far before this record. It was almost like a string. But there were a few days in between that we we got below 2,000. But we've now been above it again for 30 Uh, seven straight days. But if you think about what that means for the price of gold, I think in the entire history of of gold, there have only been 29 days where gold traded above 2,000. And in the past, when it got to 2,000, maybe it stayed there for a day, you know, three, four days, uh, that was it until that string, I think, in 2023. So it was very rare for gold to even get above 2000 let alone maintain a price above 2000 But that's what's happened. And to me, this former resistance area where everybody wanted to sell $2,000 gold has now become support where the smart money is buying the dips to 2000 Now, yes, we haven't made a lot of headway north of 2000 but we haven't gone south. And what's happening is consolidation. Yes, there are still people who want to sell gold above 2000 but I think the number of sellers is getting smaller, and the amount of gold that they have to sell is getting smaller. At the same time, more and more buyers are stepping up. And they're not waiting for breaks below 2,000. They're buying the breaks to 2,000. But they're buying before it gets to 2,000. So to me, this is a very bullish sign of a tremendous amount of support being built at a level that used to be resistance. And we're going to squeeze the overhead resistance out. The sellers are ultimately going to be gone for the market. And I think the price is just going to take off. And it's amazing to me that gold has never really looked this good, technically, fundamentally, yet the sentiment for the mining stocks has probably never been this bad. You know, I I get emails all the time. Clients are frustrated on the gold stocks. You know, when are they going to go up? I mean, people are expecting, with all this positive news, people expect these stocks to be much higher. And, of course, with the price of gold, holding above 2000 because you know a lot of my clients have been buying these gold stocks since gold was under $400 right right it's at 2000 and yeah it should be a lot higher than 2000 now part of the problem is that the cost of mining are also a lot higher now than they were when gold was at 400 in fact none of the gold companies that were mining gold back then could even be in business today uh, if uh, the price hadn't gone up because the cost went way up 
And again, that's the irony that gold stocks are the ironic victims of inflation. Inflation has driven up mining costs, but because investors still don't realize how bad the inflation problem is, the price of gold hasn't risen nearly enough to reflect it. And so that's been a problem for these uh, mining companies. But as far as I'm concerned, it's actually been a blessing for investors. I know it's frustrating if you've owned these stocks for a while, but don't worry. (laughs) You're going to, I believe, make up for it in the end. The reason it's a blessing is I've had a lot of new clients that have come on board in the last several years, and they're lucky that they have the opportunity to buy these stocks at the prices that they're at. And even older clients who have more money now uh, have an opportunity to add to their positions, which is what I have done personally. I'm very surprised that given all that's happened, I'm still able to buy some of my favorite names at the prices that they're at because you know I got to do something with my money that I'm earning. And, and so this is a great opportunity for me. But I just wanted to point out, no one really talks about the fact that gold has spent so much time above 2000 and 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 how bullish a a sign that is for the market so again you know buying physical gold and silver you know it's even more bullish for silver because if gold's going to take off which you know it looks like it will there's no way silver is going to get left behind in fact eventually it's going to cash up and overtake gold because that's what it always does i mean again you know just because it's done it you know, in the past doesn't guarantee it's going to do it in the future. But history is generally a pretty good guide because it's really all we have, right? We, we can't, we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but we know what has happened in the past. And we could use that as pretty much our only reference to try to extrapolate and, and decide what we think is the most likely thing to happen in the future. And I think that's that ultimately that you're going to see an even bigger move up in silver, especially since it's now you know, half of its record highs, whereas gold is basically at an all-time record high. Yeah, technically it's been a little higher, but for government work, it's pretty much at the highs and silver is, you know, half its highs. So I think, you know, while you're buying some gold, make sure and buy some silver. And again, you know, the mining stocks, I just, are just, they're giving these things away. I know, I mean, they're, it's not like the toy inside a Cracker Jack box, but pretty close. But yeah, I mean, there's risk, uh, but there's risk in everything. The, the key is, what is the risk in relation to the upside potential? That's the key. Yeah, I could lose money if the gold stocks go down, but you could make a hell of a lot more money if they do what I think they're going to do. Uh, and the fact that you can already buy them this cheap, I think, de-risks a lot of the trade. Yes, there's still risk in there, but the stock should be much higher in price right now given where gold is, uh, you know, technically and fundamentally. So that, that, that takes some risk out of, out of the trade. But anyway, so I want to get started, though, talking about um, the PAL uh, pilgrimage to 60 Minutes, which now seems to be a, an obligatory uh, rite of passage, although he's been on before, right? But, you know, I, I, I think it was Ben Bernanke, I think that was the first time. I mean, I could be wrong. I mean, I didn't really research it to find out if, you know, Alan Greenspan, yeah, maybe he was on 60 Minutes. I, you know, I can't even remember. But I remember um, Ben Bernanke on 60 Minutes. I remember watching that, and I remember writing a commentary about it. It was in 2009. I, I didn't do a podcast back then. I didn't do my radio show. But I used to write a lot. Uh, and, and publish my, my writings uh, online and, and send them out to a bunch of websites. And, of course, I was, I was going on, uh, you know, cable news and talking about uh, Bernanke. Uh, but the most significant uh, thing that he said uh, in response to the questions about all of the money that was created, uh, you know, in the aftermath of the beginning of the financial crisis and the collapse of Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns and AIG and Fannie and Freddie and all that stuff, right? And launching of quantitative easing, uh, slashing interest rates down to, down to zero, all, all, all that stuff that happened. 
And he goes on 60 Minutes to explain this to the country, like, you know, what's going on. And he reluctantly admitted, or maybe even not so reluctantly, that they were printing money because he was asked, uh, and I forget who the guy was that, that interviewed him on 60 Minutes, but he said, hey, you know, who's going to have to pay for all this, right? Is, this gonna, is it going to be the taxpayer? I mean, you know, all these bailouts, all this stimulus, all this money, right? Are we going to have to pay taxes? And, uh, and he said, no, no, it's, uh, you know, no one's going to have to pay any taxes because we're just printing money, right? So that means, hey, it's free, right? Nobody has to pay for it because we're, we're basically printing money. I mean, he said it's, it's, more, it's more akin to printing money because he said we're not really printing it. We're just creating entries on a keyboard. We're just magically adding uh, numbers to the, to the accounts of the banks. But he said it's effectively printing money. Anyway, I'm going to continue to talk about this. It's important and it's relevant uh, to what Powell said uh, on this Sunday. But we got a quick commercial. We'll come right back. So don't go anywhere. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. All right, I'm talking about uh, Ben Bernanke's uh, 2009 60 Minutes appearance. And so when he admitted that the Fed was printing money, he at least had enough integrity to be a bit ashamed or embarrassed about the fact that they were doing that. And he told the audience, America, that this was an emergency measure, that the Fed only did this because of the, the nature of this emergency and that it was temporary. And he said, don't worry. When this emergency is over, as soon as the recovery begins, and he didn't even say when the recovery ends or like halfway through it. I mean, I actually took a small clip from the 60 Minutes appearance from 2009 and I posted it on X. So if you look through, you know, my 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 uh, X page over the last few days, you'll see uh, that clip. It's about a minute and 20 second clip that's up there. And um, so when he's admitting this, he said, look, don't worry. We know this is unorthodox, right? This is, you know, banana republic kind of, you know, money printing. We know this is a bad thing. But, you know, these are very, very uh, difficult times. This is a hundred-year flood. I mean, we would never do this under ordinary circumstances. But they're so extraordinary, right, that these desperate times, right, call for desperate measures. And so, yeah, we printed money. And we bought government bonds, we bought mortgages, we bailed everybody out. But don't worry, because as soon as this recovery begins, right, and the emergency is over, we are going to reverse all this. We're going to unwind quantitative easing. We're going to shrink our balance sheet. We're going to raise interest rates, and we're going to shrink the money supply because we want to make sure that we don't end up with inflation. So he knew back then that the consequence of the policy, unless he could unwind it, unless the Fed can reverse the process and shrink its balance sheet back down to where it started and reduce the money supply, right? Suck out all that extra money that was pumped into the economy. In other words, deflation. When the Fed printed all this money, it was creating inflation. 
What it needed was to deflate, to reverse the process. And Ben Bernanke admitted that, and he told the 60 Minutes audience that's what the Fed was going to do. Now, I remember when he said that, and I responded. And I said, look, I don't know whether he's lying right, or he, he actually believes this, but I said back then, it ain't going to happen because it's easier said than done because you can't create an economy that is addicted to cheap money and then you know take away the cheap money. It's like we're going to get this guy hooked on drugs and then just when he's you know really starting to like it, we're going to take the drugs away. No, the guy's going to go into convulsions, right? Withdrawal. I knew the problem in 2008 was that we had too much debt. Why did we have too much debt? Because the Fed kept interest rates too low for too long, and there was a debt bubble that, that burst. And of course, when the debt bubble burst, you know, you get the financial crisis, you get a lot of losses. What was the Fed's response? More debt. Let's blow a bigger bubble. And so the problem got worse. Now, once you've made the debt problem worse, once you've added more debt, see, the market solution would have been to eliminate debt, to allow defaults and bankruptcies, right, to get rid of the problem. But the Fed's solution was to make the problem bigger, but numb us to the pain, right, by, you know, drugging us back up again. So if the Fed did quantitative easing and blew up its balance sheet and made a bigger bubble, how was it ever going to reverse that? It couldn't. It was impossible for Bernanke to follow through with his promise, his commitment. Because if the Fed actually did what Bernanke said they were going to do, they would have created an even worse financial crisis than the one that they created in 2008, which is why they never did it. Now, eventually, yeah, they did try to shrink the balance sheet, but it wasn't for like a decade later where the Fed first started shrinking the balance sheet in like, what, what was it, 2017 or something like that, and they aborted it, uh, 2018, or what, they started 2018, but they aborted it, and then, of course, when COVID hit, they you know, ratcheted it right back up again. And now, yes, they're trying again to shrink the balance sheet. And it already really caused a financial crisis in, in 2000 uh, and, and in 22, 23 rather, in March. And they put a Band-Aid on that. And the Band-Aid is starting to fall off. In fact, uh, New York Community Bank, I remember the name this time, uh, down another 22% today. You know, just today. I mean, the stock is now down at $4.20. It was a $12 stock like a week ago, you know, when they came out with this bad news. The 52-week high is $14.22, but this thing is collapsing. Uh, and this is the canary in a coal mine uh, of problems in the banks. In fact, even Janet Yellen, I think, was testifying somewhere today, like acknowledging, like, there's some problems uh, in, uh, you know, with commercial real estate uh, and regional community banks. I mean, that is an understatement. There, there's not just some problems, right? This, this is a huge, huge problem uh, that is blowing up. I mean, it already blew up, and they were able to kick the can down the road, uh, but, you know, they're out of road uh, come in March, and they're going to have to fess up. But it, they may not even make it, because I think as the March deadline uh, gets closer, uh, more problems are going to start uh, to blow up. But the, the, what I wanted to point out by bringing this up is that <clears throat> Powell went on 60 Minutes and basically lied or demonstrated his own ignorance of the situation. And that really is the precedent that has been <clears throat> repeated every time a Fed chairman has been on 60 Minutes, including... Uh, Jerome Powell's appearance over the weekend. Now, of course, one of the things he talked about on 60 Minutes was the thing he talks about at the press conference. He was basically doing an infomercial for the Biden administration talking about how great the economy is. We got the strong economy. We got the strong labor market. Everything is great, right? That's A, not true. Uh, because 
if everything was great, we wouldn't be having these massive uh, budget deficits and trade deficits. We wouldn't be seeing uh, debt exploding and savings imploding. Uh, we wouldn't be witnessing all these people holding multiple jobs, you know, record number of people forced into moonlighting. We wouldn't see uh, all-time low. Biden's popularity sank again, uh, the most recent numbers. All-time record low uh, for his presidency, meaning the all-time record low for any president uh, in, in the history of these polls. Uh, all this is happening because the economy is bad, but uh, Bernanke, I mean, uh, uh, Powell, uh, is spinning it as if it were it were good, but also you know claiming victory over inflation. I mean, saying, look, you know, we we've made a lot of progress. We think we've got the problem solved. We just want to make sure, right? We inflation has come down, but we just want to re- remain vigilant in case it rears its head again. Like we we think we've won, but we don't want to declare victory just yet, right? We just want to make sure. Uh, that everything is okay, when, of course, nothing is okay. But one of the other uh, uh, points uh, was the debt, because at least uh, the guy interviewed, and again, I forget the name of these uh, these reporters, um, but he brought up the debt, the national debt, the $34.2 trillion elephant in, in, in the room. And he said, hey, you know, are you worried about the debt, right? This has got to be a problem, right? I mean, come on, right? This is, this is a big deal. And so at least, at least they asked him about the debt because that's something that they don't do uh, when he has these press conferences, you know, like he did uh, the, the prior week, uh, all those reporters, and nobody asks him about the national debt. I mean, how can that be, right? I mean, that's got to be the, the, the biggest problem out there uh, for the country and the Fed. And not just that we have the debt, but that it's now exploding exponentially, and we have this, you know, taking bomb uh, as all the uh, short-term debt matures. Because remember, right? Janet Yellen, when she was asked about the debt, she said, "Well, it's not a problem as long as the interest rates are low, right?" And I criticized her at the time because I said, "Okay, well then it's a problem right now because we know interest rates aren't going to stay low forever, and they didn't, and so now interest rates are at over five percent." And so it's a big problem. But, of course, Janet Yellen doesn't talk about it now, that the very thing that she said that would make it a problem has happened, right? And now she's got to, I guess, get amnesia about it. Um, but at least he was asked about it on this 60 Minutes appearance. But what Powell said uh, was, was, again, not true. Either it was a lie or the guy's you know, just completely incompetent. But he said, yeah, I am worried about the national debt because we're on an unsustainable path. And that, yes, if we don't do something about it, well, it's going to be a problem for the future generations. You know, we're taxing, you know, borrowing from the future generations. And yes, you know, it's unsustainable and it's going to be a problem in the future for future generations. Right. That's basically a way of saying it's not a problem right now. So none of you people who are watching 60 Minutes tonight have to worry. It's your grandkids, right, <laughs> that they have to worry. So who cares, right? They'll figure out, right? I mean, that's what they always say. It's a problem for the future. It's not a problem for the future. This is not a long-term problem anymore. This is a short-term problem that could blow up any minute. It's this generation that's going to pay the piper, not some future generation. It's happening right now. Now, does that mean it's going to happen tomorrow? Well, it could, but it probably won't. But it's not 10 years away. It's probably not even five years away. But even if it was 10 years away, that's this generation, right? That's the people who are expecting to collect Social Security. These aren't your grandchildren. This is, this is you. This is us that are going to deal with this problem. And Jerome Powell shouldn't be worried about it because we're on an unsustainable path. He should be worried that we've already arrived at an unsustainable destination. Anyway, we got a second commercial, so stick around. I'll be right back. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. 
Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. All right, I'm talking about Jerome Powell's 60-minute appearance. And, you know, I think he did a disservice to the nation in dismissing uh, the significance and severity of the debt problem, uh, admitting that we're on an unsustainable path and claiming that it's something future generations are going to have to deal with, uh, lets everybody off the hook. What Powell should have said is this is a huge problem and you need to pressure your congressman to do something about it right now. We can't wait for the crisis. We have to preempt the crisis. As bad as it's going to be, waiting for the market to cause it is going to be even worse. We have to bring the crisis about under our own terms, kind of like a controlled burn to the extent you can even uh, control it rather than waiting for an uncontrollable uh, wildfire uh, to just develop. But no, he's not going to do that. He's a politician. He wants to pretend that everything is great uh, to let the politicians off the hook from having to actually make any of the difficult political choices. And it's only difficult because it jeopardizes their reelection, right? It's not really difficult. I mean, doing the right thing is, is pretty easy, assuming you know what the right thing is. You just cast a vote. The reason it's so difficult is because these cowards in Washington don't want to risk losing the next election. You know, that's it. I mean, they won't even do that for their country. I mean, we've had people who have gone to war and have died for their country, yet our elected leaders won't even risk losing an election for their country. I mean, how unpatriotic can you be? I mean, what's so horrible? I mean, so you lose the election, so you got to get a real job. I mean, that's not like dying, you know, in battle for your country. So it's a very small sacrifice that we're asking these guys to do. Just cast a principled vote for the good of the country. And they can't even do that, that one simple thing. Anyway, let me move on to the other interview that's on my mind. And that was the Donald Trump, uh, Maria Bartiromo, Fox uh, interview. And look, I mean, obviously... I want Trump over Biden. Trump is better than Biden or Biden is worse than Trump, right? So if those are your choices, then then Trump. And if I could vote, that's who I'd vote for. But I can't vote because I live in Puerto Rico. So I don't even have to make a decision, not that it's a difficult one. Although a lot of times I vote libertarian because that's where my principles lie. And, you know, when I lived in Connecticut, yeah, you know, I usually voted Libertarian, except I did vote for Trump because, you know, nobody thought he could win. And I just, you know, I I thought he was going to win. At least I wanted to be part of that. So so I voted for him. And, I, you know, I was hoping that he would actually do a lot more than he did. I I was hoping that he would govern the way he ran, uh, but he governed more like a politician. He he ran uh, more as a as a statesman, but that's not how he governed. But again. Anything can happen in his second term. So, you know, you can always hope. Um, But again, he says things that I I just, you know, really wish he would not say. Now, granted, some of it could just be, you know, campaigning, right? It's it's a good, you know, campaign uh, strategy. Um, uh, But, you know, I I got a problem uh, with dishonesty. And uh, and so and and, and although in Trump's mind, I mean, look, again, you know, it's not a lie if Trump believes it. Right. So if Trump says something that's not true, it's not a lie if he believes it. Right. So I'm talking about a couple of things in particular. One, of course, he talks about how great the economy was when he was president. Now, he talks about how lousy it is now. It's a disaster. It's awful. We're a nation in decline. We're in ruin. I mean, it's like. 
you know, everything is horrible. Except three years ago when he was there, everything was fantastic. Not only was it fantastic, according to Donald Trump, the U.S. economy was never stronger in its history, in its 250-odd year history. The economy was never stronger, ever, than when he was president. And then he also said that we had never been doing as well as a country right, than during the time that he was president. I guess maybe he's talking about before COVID, right? right? During, during those uh, three years, whatever it was, uh, that it was the best it's ever been. Now, you got to have a real short memory or really not have any understanding of American history to believe that that was even close to being true. I mean, first of all, when Trump was president, even before COVID, the budget deficits were rising and the trade deficits were rising. So if you take those two signs, how could we have been this huge, prosperous nation if uh, we were bleeding red ink in, in, in international trade and our budget deficits? And also, manufacturing was continuing to decline uh, during his, uh, his presidency. So the trends that were in place before Trump entered office didn't change while he was in office. He inherited a bubble from uh, Obama and it got bigger under his watch. Now, does that mean he didn't do any good things while he was president? No, he did some good things on foreign policy. He did some good things on deregulation. He did some good appointments to the Supreme Court. So it wasn't a complete disaster but he didn't make America great again. He didn't cut anything. He didn't cut government spending. In fact, in this Maria Bartiromo interview, he was bragging about having created the Space Force. The last thing we needed was a Space Force. You know, we, we were already broke from the stuff we're doing here on Earth. The last thing we needed to do is borrow more money to do more stuff in space that we can't afford. So he still didn't get that. He signed every uh, spending increase. He increased military spending, he in increased uh, welfare spending. The government got bigger. Yes, we deregulated, which was good. We could have done a lot more of that. But the government spending went up. Uh, so the burden, I don't care that he cut taxes. Like Trump, Trump wants to brag about the big tax cuts. Those big tax cuts mean nothing if spending went up, if the deficits went up. Who does Donald Trump think is on the hook to pay those deficits? The taxpayers. So they got no relief. It is a sham. You cut taxes, but you increase spending. All you're doing is giving the taxpayer a bigger bill in the form of deficits that are going to be repaid with either higher taxes or more inflation, which is partially responsible for the high inflation that we have today. He's not totally responsible because there were presidents that went before him that are responsible, and Congress was responsible, and the Fed was responsible. So he's part of the problem, right? He's not part of the solution, at least not yet. I mean, if he does something completely different in his second term, well, maybe. So I'll reserve judgment uh, until, you know, we actually see what he does. But so far, right, he is to blame uh, because no government spending was cut. And when he talked on uh, Bartolomo, he didn't mention anything he's going to cut. In fact, when he talked about inflation, the only thing he said, his whole plan to fight inflation is drill, baby, drill. That's it, right? Three words, drill, baby, drill. Now, yuck, I'm all for, you know, rolling back regulations on oil and gas. Yeah, let's drill more oil. Sure, yeah, it's great. But that's not going to solve the problem. We don't have inflation because we didn't drill enough oil. We have inflation because we printed too much money. And we printed too much money because the government spent too much money. And that happened under Trump. And it's going to continue to happen under Trump unless we cut government spending. But so far, he doesn't want to cut Social Security, doesn't want to cut Medicare. He doesn't talk about anything that he wants to cut. And I understand you start talking about what you're going to cut, you start losing votes, right? <laughs> uh, but, you know, so maybe... Uh, after he becomes president, he'll be able to start doing the things that he's afraid to talk about uh, because he wants to get um, people's votes. Now, he did talk about raising taxes, though, interestingly enough. 
but only because he claims that Americans are going to have to pay him. He talked about raising taxes on the Chinese, tariffs. He said that he's going to impose tariffs. Now, Maria said, hey, we've heard that you might have 60% tariffs on, on Chinese goods. And he said, no, no, no. It could be more than 60%, right? You know, and he acts as if that this is a great thing, right? And that the Chinese are going to pay these tariffs. Well, the Chinese don't pay the tariffs. It's the Americans who buy Chinese products. They pay the tariffs, not the Chinese. Now, yes, the Chinese might hurt if, you know, they have lower sales, right? Their sales go down because their goods are a lot more expensive. So, yes, the president can do some damage to China uh, with these tariffs, but the Chinese don't pay the tariffs. It's the Americans that pay the tariffs. Now, Americans can decide not to buy the Chinese goods, right? And they don't pay the tariffs, but now they buy other goods that were made in another country, uh, maybe Indonesia, uh, maybe uh, Taiwan, uh, you know, wherever, Mexico or some other country, right? They're not made in America because we don't make the stuff, right? So instead of buying from China, we buy from the next cheapest supplier, but it's still more expensive. And so if you don't buy a Chinese product and you end up buying an Indonesian product, that's 20% cheaper than what the Chinese product would have been, but it's still cheaper than what the Chinese product is with the tariff, that difference is still being paid by the American consumer who is forced to buy a more expensive product because the government put a tariff on the lower price product, artificially jacking up the price. Now, of course, when that happens, everybody loses because at least when the American buys the Chinese good that's subject to the tariff, the U.S. government gets the money, right? So now that's a smaller deficit because the government collected the tax. But if an American switches from a Chinese product to another more expensive product, the U.S. government gets nothing. There's no tax there. But the American just pays more and the government gets nothing. So it's just a lose-lose uh, for America. Now, look, I'm not necessarily against tariffs. Uh, as a substitute for other forms of taxes, like tell the American public, hey, we're going to lower your payroll tax, we're going to lower your income tax, and we're going to replace it with a tariff. In fact, I mentioned this on this podcast, the way Congress and the president sold the American public on the income tax in the first place. The reason we even had a 13th or 16th Amendment, rather, uh, is that the congressman told the voters, if we get an income tax, we can eliminate the tariffs because everybody knew that the middle class and the poor paid the tariffs. And so the politicians said, hey, let's tax the rich. Let's tax Carnegie and Vanderbilt and Rockefeller. Right? Let's tax those guys. And uh, and then we don't have to tax you with, with, with tariffs. So, you know, given the fiscal situation that we're in and given the, the state that our industry is in, Tariffs might not be a bad way to raise revenue, but at least you got to level with the public uh, that the people are paying those, uh, those tariffs. But what we really need are not just tax increases. <laughs> we need spending cuts. Americans pay a lot of taxes. We just don't pay a lot of taxes in relation to how much money the government spends. We have the biggest government in the history of the world, and it spends more money, and it doesn't collect nearly enough in taxes to cover that spending. That doesn't mean we're not paying enough taxes. It means they're spending too much. Now, yes, if we want all this government, then we better be prepared for much higher taxes or much higher prices and pay the inflation tax one way or another. But I think if most Americans realize what the choice was, either paying higher taxes or having less government, most people would accept less government. It says they just don't realize that they have to make that choice. They think they can have their cake and eat it too, right? They think there's a free lunch uh, that the government is serving. When they realize how expensive uh, the food is, they're not going to want to eat it anymore. Oh, and by the way, I mentioned, you know, the Carnegies and the Rockefellers. And, you know, these guys made their, their fortunes uh, during the real heyday of the American economy, uh, which was from... I guess the end of the, the Civil War, so call it, you know, 
1870-ish. You know, give me a few, few years for reconstruction. But from 1870 until about the First World War, uh, 1913 or 1916 was the First World War. The Federal Reserve was created in 1913. Um, but that period of time, that was the Gilded Age. That was the boom. We've never seen economic growth anywhere close to that. Not even in the post-war period uh, after the Second World War, the 1950s, uh, which were clearly more prosperous than the Trump years. But the 1880s, the 1890s, the 1910s, the 1920s, I mean, what we've never seen anything like it in, in my lifetime as far as the rise in the standard of living that, that, that Americans had. I mean, that's when the economy was never doing better. That's when we lifted millions and millions of people out of poverty, not just from America, but from all around the world. Remember, all the immigrants were coming here, uh, you know, by the millions uh, through Ellis Island and then going all around the country. That's when all four of my grandparents came here. Uh, we were eradicating poverty all over the world because people were moving to America for freedom and opportunity, not for government programs and handouts. But that's when we created all these, you know, uh, wealthy people that, you know, the robber barons. Uh, but the real wealth was the middle class, which came from nothing. I mean, we invented the middle class. There was no middle class in Europe. There was very poor and there was the rich. Middle class was an American phenomenon created uh, by American capitalism. And so the standard of living of average people rose like never before. And we transformed the whole economy, right? In 1870, <clears throat> People were riding around on horses. Uh, you know, they had candles. They're, they had an outhouse. They didn't have indoor plumbing. Um, but, you know, by 1916, you know, or, you know, when the war started, there was electricity. People had telephones. Uh, people had indoor plumbing. People had refrigeration. I mean, I mean people had appliances. You know, we were mass producing uh, all these consumer goods. Wash, washing machines, vacuum cleaners, I mean, all kinds of stuff uh, was invented. People had radio. I mean, I mean life was completely transformed. Uh, the standard of living rose like no other period. So when Trump wants to talk about the fact that the U.S. economy has never done better in its history, he doesn't know American history. That's when it did the best. America did the best when the government governed the least, when government was an afterthought when there were no income taxes, when there were no payroll taxes, when we had none of these programs, when government was tiny and, and, and lived within the confines of the Constitution, when we had sound money, when we had gold and silver as money, not all this fiat, that's when we did the best. I mean, the economy wasn't even the best of my lifetime when Trump was president, uh, let alone uh, the best in American history. Anyway, I want to finish up the podcast, though, by talking about what the SEC did, the news came out today. And, of course, you know, no one's probably going to be talking about how bad this is on, you know, your conventional uh, news networks. I mean, they might talk about it, right? Oh, here's some new news coming out of the SEC, right, without appreciating, you know, how bad it is. Uh, but anyway, I, I talked about this over the summer. I mentioned that a friend of mine who lived out here in Puerto Rico had been sued by the SEC for uh, trading securities without being a licensed security broker. He wasn't uh, licensed by FINRA, right? And I talked about FINRA. I was with FINRA for 30 years, and I'm now FINRA-free. But my friend uh, was trading securities, and FINRA said, hey, you're trading securities, and you're not a licensed security dealer. We're fining you millions and millions of dollars, right? Well. But my friend wasn't a broker-dealer. He traded exclusively for his own account. He had no customers. He was just trading his own money. What he used to do uh, was he invested in companies, he loaned the money, and he would generally do convertible notes where he can convert the debt into stock in the company, and then he could take that stock and sell it. But it's his own money. Right? The government said, oh, no. You're, 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 you're a dealer. You're a security dealer, and, and you should have been registered. And I pointed out that that was complete 
farce because he's not a dealer, because he doesn't have any customers. You see, the reason that we have these security regulations, in 1934, after the Great Depression started, Roosevelt's president, the stock market crashed in 1929, and the government said, oh, look at all these people who lost money in the stock market. The government needs to protect them, right? That we, we need to have the SEC to protect the investors so they don't lose money in the stock market. Right? Well, think about how many investors have lost money you know, in the stock market since the SEC. Now, the, the irony again, or this is how government works, the government, the Federal Reserve caused the stock market crash. Well, they didn't cause the crash, they caused the bubble. And the bubble made the crash inevitable. And you know, if you want to read uh, a, a short synopsis, read Alan Greenspan's Golden Economic Freedom. And, and he writes about how the Federal Reserve inflated the bubble in the late 1920s. So the Fed caused the stock market bubble. The bursting was inevitable. Yes, people lost money. They lose money in every bubble. And now the government says, oh, people lost money. We need more government. We need to create an entire agency to protect the public from these unscrupulous broker-dealers who are ripping them off. No, we need protection from government. We need protection from central bankers. The free market provides us protection from unscrupulous uh, brokers. So we get the SEC that was started in 1934. But then it was worse. They amended that act in 1939 to create something worse than the SEC, and that was the National Association of Security Dealers, the NASD. And I originally became a member of the NASD in the 1980s. The NASD is what became FINRA in 2007, and, it, and it's still FINRA. But that was created again under FDR in 1939 to protect the public. Because according to the government, we're all too stupid right, to know a bad broker and to fire one. Right? We can't have a free market. We can't have it caveat emptor. No, no, no. The public is too dumb to figure out who's a good stockbroker and who's a bad stockbroker. So we're going to have this government organization uh, to regulate. But actually, FINRA, or NASD, was private. So they created a private uh, organization. But then the government said, if you want to trade securities for a living for customers, if you want to charge commissions and you want to be a stockbroker, right? you want to make a market to the public, you got to be a member of this club. And if you're not, see, we can sue you. We can fine you. Right? You can't be a stockbroker unless you join this club, which is why the whole thing was illegal. Because so much of what FINRA does is unconstitutional, but the government would say, well, we're not doing it. This is a private uh, uh, organization that's doing this. They can do what they want. They're private. They're not really private if the government requires you to be a member. Right? That, there's nothing private about that. Yes, if membership was voluntary, okay, but it's not voluntary. If you want to be a stockbroker, you've got to be a member. And if you're not a member, well, you're going to get uh, fined or sued or, you know, you go to jail. Well, what just happened? The SEC now ruled, uh, and this is, you know, follows up on what was going on with my friend. They're now saying, and I, I don't have all the criteria, but they're basically saying that if you are trading in various markets or you're trading in certain dollar uh, amounts, even if you're just a hedge fund trading your own money or you're, you know, or you're a, uh, a, a market maker or you're a prop trader, right? You're just trading for your own account or you're a group of people, you know, sophisticated uh, people who have come together and have formed a fund, an investment vehicle, and you're trading for yourself, right? You're not you're not charging anybody a fee. You're not making any money off the trade. See, that was the whole definition of a security dealer, security broker dealer, is you're getting paid. You are trading on behalf of a third party, and you are charging that third party a commission or a markup or some type of fee, right? And that's what made you a broker dealer. But now the SEC is saying, even if you have no customers at all, if you're just trading for yourself, we're going to consider you a broker-dealer, and we're going to regulate you. We're going to require you to become a member of FINRA, to join that club, to pay all their licensing fees, 
to follow all their rules, to be subject to their audits and all their fines and all that BS, and now they're saying more and more people have to be subject to this. But why? There's no customer to protect. If the whole purpose of the law was to protect the customer who's unsophisticated mom and pop guy from some greedy broker who is gonna rip them off, what is the justification for this when there is no customer? It's just sophisticated people. Are they gonna rip themselves off? The government has to protect you from yourself? The, the whole thing is ridiculous, apart from the fact that it's unconstitutional. But think about this, the, the, a law was passed. The, 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 secure, the act that created the SEC and FINRA, Congress passed this act. There was a vote and a president had to sign it. A law was passed specifically to regulate broker dealers. How can the SEC, nobody elected these guys, they just have a meeting and they decide they're going to redefine what a broker dealer is so that they can regulate something where there's been no legislation authorizing it. Congress has never voted on this. A president has never signed this. The whole thing is a violation of our due process. We're supposed to be a nation of laws, not a few men that work at the SEC just deciding to make laws by redefining words. Words have meaning. They can't change the meaning. I mean, what if Congress you know, decided they were going to pass a tax on, on bananas, some kind of national excise tax on bananas? They voted for it and the president signed it. And so there's a banana tax. And then you have the Commerce Department decides, you know, we're gonna just define a banana as all fruit. And they start imposing the tax on oranges, on apples, on grapes, on blueberries. I mean, how could they do that? The tax was on bananas, right? It's not on blueberries. You wanna tax blueberries, go back and pass a new bill, right? Have everybody vote on it, right? So if Congress wants to regulate proprietary traders, right? Hedge funds that are trading for their own account. If they want to force a hedge fund to register with FINRA, then pass a, pass a new law, have a vote, right? Study it, have some committees, right? Debate it, and then have a president sign it. Follow the due process of our country. You just can't have these bureaucrats making law and making it you know, retroactively too, because now they'll probably go back and say, hey, you should have been registered all along, right? Like that's what they did with my friend. They're trying to fine him from doing something that everybody thought was legal. And it was legal until they decided retroactively, like ex post facto, which is also unconstitutional. But all this is gonna do, because it's gonna go through because no one gives a damn. What is the effect of this? It's going to dramatically raise the cost of these proprietary traders and these hedge funds uh, being in business. And so there'll be fewer of them. Some marginal guys will go away. And so what does that mean? That means there'll be less liquidity in these markets because these people trading for themselves actually provide liquidity to the market. Because they're there, uh, average investors do a little bit better. They're not ripping off the investors. <clears throat> they are creating more liquidity. And so the liquidity is gonna drive up dry up, the cost of trading is gonna go up, and everybody's gonna hurt. You know, ironically, and I mentioned this on my last podcast, the little guy is already suffering. Because of FINRA and these complex rules and regulations, no broker-dealers will work with the little guy. The little guy can't get an account at a full-service brokerage firm. He can't meet the minimums. <laughs> Why are those minimums there? Because the regulatory burden is so high that these firms can't afford to work with the very people that FINRA was created to protect, right? So they destroyed it. So those guys are already working on their own. And the fact that there's more liquidity uh, and they can trade for free or pr practically, I mean, how can they be upset? Look at how low trading costs are right now, right? I mean, people are trading for nothing, right, at discount brokerage firms. Uh, but this is all government overreach. It's usurpation. It's... Uh, the, the bureaucrats, the, the uh, regulators making law. They're not there to make law. They're there to enforce the laws that Congress 
passes and that the president signs. And that's it. And what they're doing is illegal, it's unconstitutional, and nobody is going to talk about that except for me. Anyway, that's it for today. Uh, again, like the video, make sure, if you know, give it, give it a thumbs up, give it a like, uh, leave me a comment. Again, don't forget to check me out live tomorrow on Laura Ingram uh, from uh, 8 to 9 p.m., somewhere in there, uh, Eastern time. Bye for now.